from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Alva Noe of the Philosophy Department discussing his book, Infinite Baseball, Notes from a Philosopher at the Ballpark. He is joined by Anthony Cascardi, Dean of the College of Letters and Science. I, I want to begin with a confession. Uh, and the confession is that this is not the first time that Alva and I have been in conversation. But it is the first time that we've been in conversation about this book. And um, preceding uh, our first event of this sort, I told Alva that the format would go something like this. I would pitch him softball questions, and he would hit them out of the park. <laughs> so obviously, we can't do that today because it's baseball. Uh, and it, it, in thinking about, about the conversation and the event, I just came to realize how much baseball is completely woven into our language. I found myself at one point facing what felt like a minefield of possible puns and figures of speech, and it was just, it was, it, there were just too many, so I will be very, very restrained and try not to not enter that somewhat dangerous, um, dangerous terrain. No curveballs, please. <laughs> and from there it goes. <laughs> uh, I have it in my mind that this audience is comprised half of baseball nuts who can't get enough baseball even if there's no actual baseball involved, and half philosophy nuts who can't get enough philosophy no matter what it's about, including baseball. Uh, in some ways, the convergence of those two things is right here sitting across from me, Alva, Alva Noe, who's a baseball nut and uh, a very, very distinguished philosopher. Um, I want to begin the conversation, uh, as is not customary, by reading a passage from another book that I happen to be reading alongside yours, Alva, and just, just open this for your thoughts. And the, it's uh, tr recently translated from the Italian by Giacomo Sartori called I Am God. Um, if you'll bear with me. I am God, and I have no need to think. Up to now, I've never thought, and I've never felt the need, not in the slightest. The reason human beings are in such a bad way is because they think. Thought is by definition sketchy and imperfect and misleading. To any thought, one can oppose another, uh, an obverse thought, and to that, yet another, and so forth and so on. And the inane cerebral yakety yak is about as far from divine as you can get. Every thought is destined to expire from the moment it's hatched, and just like the mind that hatched it. A god does not think. That's the last thing we need. <laughs> so I want to pose that as a, a general uh, passage for comment by a philosopher who's found a way to think about many, many things, including baseball. Um, Alva, what do you have to say about the, uh, what I detect as a kind of irresistibility of thinking about things, including baseball? Well, there's different ways that I can answer that. Um, as many of you know, philosophy is in the business of precisely thinking about the things which we tend not to think about, the things we take for granted. Um, 
putting our perceptual consciousness itself, our ways of being in the world, our values and attitudes on the table for, for contemplation. So in some ways, what I'm trying to do is, what I'm trying to, to do here is, is bring that kind of attention to baseball. But um, what I found remarkable and kind of stimulating in the quote you read, which I'm not sure I entirely understood. <laughs> I lost a little bit track of who was speaking. But, um, but is this idea that it's kind of an affliction to need to think. Absolutely. And that, and that wouldn't it be better if we could Absolutely. just get on with the game and play? <laughs> um, and actually, that's really the central or one, I'd say this, the main idea in this book, that um, baseball is an activity which is endlessly anxious about its own performance, about the significance of its own, own doings, so that there is no free play that can be separated from thinking about all the questions raised by the play itself. And I actually argue that that makes, makes, makes baseball, in a way, a kind of philosophical sport, because it's a, a way of giving in this sounds very abstract. I hope we get a bit more concrete. But it's a way of giving in to the ways in which playing baseball raises questions. Um, yes, you, you do make the argument in the book that baseball is a game, uh, a sport. And I don't know as though we distinguish between game and sport in the, in the book. But nonetheless, um, it's, a, it's a practice mm. that incorporates in its very nature reflection on its nature as a practice. And I hope we'll get a chance to be a little more specific about that. But before we do, um, <laughs> I, I want to just get a little closer to the question of philosophy's relationship to something like yeah. baseball. We conventionally think of philosophy as directing its attention toward object, various object domains or subject domains. So we have a philosophy of science and we have a philosophy of mind, and we have a philosophy of language, and we have a philosophy of religion, and we have philosophies of other things that are maybe less, less customarily designated, but there are these recognized domains of philosophy. Are you presenting us with a philosophy of baseball uh, that should take its place alongside the philosophy of science and religion? or a philosophy of sport that should take its side, of which baseball would be an example? Where does this fit in terms of the, the domain differentiation of philosophy? I'm glad you raised that, because I was hoping we could talk about funding a new chair in the <laughs> philosophy of baseball University <laughs> of California. Um, no, <laughs> actually, actually, that's really not my picture. My picture is that philosophy is, is a lot of different conversations that have been going on for a long time. And philosophical problems crop up everywhere. They crop up um, in the domains of sciences, and they crop up in the domain of politics, and they crop up in the domain of all aspects of our lives. Um, and I'm just offering baseball as yet another place where we might find it. But, but actually not to, not to suggest that there should be a distinct subject called philosophy of baseball. I don't think really there's a distinct subject, which is the philosophy of science or the philosophy of mind. Um, philosophy asks, like I said at the outset, it tries to bring into play and ask questions about the things that are taken for granted in our ordinary thought and talk and life. I'm thinking of, you know, I'm very inspired by, by Plato throughout this book. And one of the early Socratic dialogues is so important for me. Um, it's called the Euthyphro. Um, I'm not a Plato scholar. I just, there are Plato scholars in the room, so I should be careful. Um, but, um, 
But Euthyro has this amazing beginning. Socrates and his friends are hanging out on a street corner, as they liked to do. And Euthyro comes along, and Socrates is like, hey, Euthyro, what's up? Where are you going? And Euthyro says, oh, I'm off to the courts. Why are you going to the courts? Well, I'm taking out a lawsuit against my father. Oh, dear me. That's interesting. Why are you taking out a lawsuit against your father? Well, I'd like to bring him up on the charge of impiety. And Socrates says, this is my lucky day. I've always wanted to know what piety is. Tell me. <laughs> and then they're off to the races. And of course, what Socrates does very well is embarrass Euthyphro, um, show that when he's interrupted from his sort of bandying around a word like piety and asked to actually think deep, deeply and reflect on why he wants to say the things he wants to say about it, he's quickly at a loss. Um, so the upshot is not the upshot of the whole dialogue is not an explanation of what piety is, but rather some kind of recognition that we don't know what piety is. Um, and so I want to do, want to do what, what Socrates did for piety for baseball. Well, this is, this is, this is <laughs> very interesting. We think we know what it is, but we do not. This is very interesting, and truly I'm learning something. <laughs> because uh, in reading the book, I thought the subtitle, had it not been Notes from a Philosopher at the Ballpark, might have been something like Wittgenstein in the Bleachers. Yeah. <laughs> it's, very, it's a very Wittgenstein, Wittgensteinian book. Don't, do you see it that way? Well, what would that mean to this audience? It's a Wittgensteinian book. Wittgenstein was a philosopher who, who rebelled against questions like, what is piety? Because he thought a word like or a concept like piety might be used in different ways in what he called a, a, a group of sort of ways that resembled each other, the way people resemble each other in a family, but not because they have some common essence. And certainly, this is a book which is built up out of bits and pieces, observations. And it does actually argue that baseball is, as you said, a practice, not merely an activity. And I make a distinction between practices and activities. It's a practice. And that is a little bit like Wittgenstein saying that our conceptual lives are, are linguistic practices or are grounded in linguistic practices. But actually, I think, interestingly, Socrates anticipated Wittgenstein. <laughs> um, I was thinking especially, no, no doubt, uh, in many ways, I was thinking, though, that base, the, the Wittgen, Wittgenstein's language game is very much like Alvinoli's baseball game. Yeah which is to say that there are conventions and constructs in, in baseball very, um, you might say, episodically constructed within which things make sense or don't make sense. And so you talk in one part of the book about effectively the hermeneutics of baseball, what's ex what is expected and what is not. And we could talk about how the game works in that, in that context. But I came away from this thinking that baseball game and language game were very, very analogous uh, mm -hmm. phenomena. Yeah, I agree with that. And one, there, I approached that kind of idea in lots of different ways throughout the book. But one of the things I try to use thinking about baseball to do is to think about language and writing uh, in our lives, also communication. Um, to bring it, to make it concrete, to begin to, to begin to tie what we're talking about actually to the playing of baseball, um, it's it's interesting to think about the relationship between the pitcher and the batter as a kind of communication exchange, where the batter's only hope of coping with what the pitcher throws at him is having some expectation of what it would be reasonable or likely for him to throw, so that there's a sense in which the the at bat really is really is 
like a Wittgensteinian language game. And of course, there's a point. Each player has a point. The, the, play, the batter's point is to try to get on base, or to at least to avoid an out. And the pitcher's point is to try to get the batter out. One of the surprises uh, for me as I began reading the book uh, was uh, the way in which you approach baseball as, let's say, a non-data-driven sport. Many people think that baseball is, is what it is because it presents us with so many uh, possible combinations, permutations of circumstances which we can track um, and analyze and, and compare around which we have, for which we have immense uh, amounts of data uh, and about which we can talk. But that's really not what baseball is about for you. No. No, and I hope the baseball nuts in the room won't be disappointed. This is not a sort of a contribution to baseball analytics. If anything, it's kind of a, a criticism of the too great obsession with thinking of baseball as a numbers game. I think of baseball, if anything, as a storytelling game. We're trying to make sense of the game as we play it and tell its story as we, as we play it. That's why there's this extraordinarily important activity of keeping score, which is at the heart of baseball culture trying to write the game down in real time as we play it, trying to sort of record history as it's happening. Um, and it's not easy to do um, because, well, for a variety of reasons, the, the, the nature of events in baseball require hermeneutics. They require interpretation. And they throw up all sorts of conceptual puzzles, which I hope we'll have a chance to talk about. But um, the way I think about the numbers is statistics and numbers, probabilities and measurements, are simply one very useful tool for storytelling and for framing what's going on in the game. But we make a big mistake, I think, if we think sort of the interest that attaches to the game bottoms out in, in numbers. One of the, I think, very, very insightful uh, arguments that you make, uh, and it's, it's early on in the book, um, is that baseball is a game of responsibilities. It's a game in which who is credited for what and who is charged with what matters fundamentally to the game. And that does relate to keeping scores. Mm -hmm. Keeping scores, not just recording events, but it's actually a record that involves who is responsible for what. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to expand on that? For yeah, I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you're pointing so directly to that point, because in some ways, it's, it's the uh, <coughs> most novel idea in the book. Um, and I think it's, it's one I care a lot about. Um, I had this, this appreciation one day that when we care about events in baseball, we don't just care about sort of events as you might think of them materially. Ball goes here, runner goes there. How we think about those events is always in relation to what matters. And what matters is always how we source praise and blame in relation to those events. So we care not just that the ball went there and the, batter, and the, the runner made it to the base. We ask, was it a hit? Or did the runner make it to the base, the batter make it to the base as a result of a fielder's choice? Or perhaps it was a result of a fielder's error. Um, and those differences, which don't actually affect the sort of mere material unfoldings of the ground, are the source of what interests us. That's what we're paying attention to. And if we're trying to write the game in real time by keeping score, that's the decisions we need to make about how to decide what happened. Or to give other examples. Uh, a runner on first makes it to second on a pitch. Is it a stolen base? Or did he advance because of defensive indifference? 
or did he advance because of a wild pitch or a passed ball? Again, same action, but very different meanings. Or consider this, we care so much about runs. I mean, the most fundamental thing we keep score about is we keep score of who's got the most runs. But then we ask the question, not just what, how many runs are there, but, but was this an earned run? <laughs> and an earned run is a run that we can blame the pitcher for having that happen. <laughs> right? Um, an unearned run is he's innocent. And, it's, uh, so, and, and these are the questions. These, these judgments about praise and blame actually make it the case that something happened. A different interpretation would, would make for a totally different outcome. And one of the areas where this gets kind of more controversial is I would even go so far as to say that something as basic and fundamental as the ball and strike needs to be understood in this way. So you know, nowadays, if you watch a baseball game on TV, they have the the kind of graphical rendering of where the strike zone is, and we can decide that the umpire was wrong or right because he correctly or incorrectly called where the ball was. But I think it's a, it's a, for me, it's much less interesting and I think a kind of misunderstanding to think of the strike zone as a physical space. I think of the strike zone as a zone of responsibility. <laughs> the, the, a strike is a pitch the batter ought to have been able to hit, and if the batter can't hit it, it's his fault, to the pitcher's credit. A ball, on the other hand, is a, is a, a thrown ball that you can't blame the, patcher, the batter for not being able to take a swing at. And finally, But you can blame him for swinging at it and missing. And you can blame him for swinging at it and missing. That's true, for, for a kind of profound lack of self-understanding. Thank you for your <laughs> But so, but, but so what's going on there? You know, so it's not, it's, not about the, it's not about the location of the pitch or the pitch's velocity. It's about the, this very subtle, normatively laden, communicative thing which is going on in that situation. And the umpire, I would say, one of the kind of mistakes I think we make about umpiring is to think of the umpire as just this fascinating, fancy measuring device. But really, the umpire is a participation, is a participant, rather, in that exchange. And... Um, what the umpire is deciding is not where the ball was, but whether the batter should have hit it, or whether the, the pitcher really shouldn't have thrown it there. And you can look closely at the dramas of at-bats and see how that works out. Sometimes if, a, if an umpire miscalls a pitch on one ball, he'll, he'll kind of correct it on the next ball because he's trying to be fair and be true to the, to the quality of the, of the exchange that's going on. So all of these are examples where what matters is thinking of baseball as a as a sphere in which to play the game is actually to be interested in questions about agency, responsibility, um, achievement, praise, blame. I hate to use the negative word blame, but I think blame is a big part of it. And um, in that sense, it's a kind of an agency game. Or what I call it in the book is it's a forensic sport. And I, 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 the idea there being you know, forensics is, as we all know from Cops and Robbers shows, it's the science of whodunit. It's the science of you know, who's responsible for the crime based on the telltale evidence that the forensic scientists can explore. It has a, a more original meaning in, in law, which you find also used in the philosopher John Locke, where it means precisely, um, for, forensic means pertaining to the law or to questions of agency and responsibility. So who's culpable, who's liable for a crime? That's a forensic question. And baseball is, is I think, a forensic sport. So if I'm following you, um, baseball is a game that involves interpretation at every turn. The interpretation redounds to these fundamental questions of responsibility that accord praise and blame. But 
I don't think you say that it's all interpretation. That is to say, you don't deny that there are a set of facts of the matter in, in, about the game, that a ball was hit. So in talking about, you, you address the question of inter, what you call internal realism. <laughs> so that you're not, you're not a fact denier, uh, I don't think. No. So, so because there is, there is the, the temptation to criticize positions that rely so heavily on interpretation uh, uh, and to characterize them as denying the very existence of facts. No, I like and there's a, there's a draw toward the facts, like we want the umpire to get the facts exactly <laughs> right, where that's, I think we're saying, is a misapprehension of the role of the umpire. Yeah. That's, that's such an interesting set of, set of questions, um, which I think, again, makes baseball a little microcosm for thinking about lots of other ways in which facts and values collide in, in our lives. Um, so if you, think, if you think of the umpire as a measuring device, that sort of goes with the idea that there's the facts and he simply uh, responds to them. An extreme other view, which you sometimes hear umpires defend, is a kind of an anti-realism, according to which whatever the umpire says goes. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's, you know, some umpires, you know, I, I call them as I see them, or they are the way I see them, and this is, a, this is an idea. Um, so you seem to have this standoff between internal, between a realism and an anti-realism, and the re what the realist gets right, in philosophy so often extreme views capture something that we want to say, and what the realist gets right is that sometimes we do seriously question and want to dispute whether umpires made the correct call. That happens all the time, and that's really important. Um, but um, what the realist can't really account for are these forensic interpretive hermeneutic qualities that I was just talking about. So what I, what I offer in, in one chapter in the book, and by the way, the book is not a, a, a defense of this ism or that ism. These are sort of short, fun, amusing essays in which I just happen to throw these isms around. But I use the term internal realism, which is an homage to my professor, Hilary Putnam, when I was a graduate student who used that term. Um, and the idea here is, there's, there's, there are really, there are facts, just as there are social facts about you know, race and gender and all these kinds of things, but these facts only come into focus from within the shared practices that we have. So there's, there's no baseball external way of deciding what's a home run and what isn't. There's no baseball external fact of the matter about you know, foul balls. You have to be inside baseball to even care about foul ball. <laughs> but the interesting thing is if you do care about foul balls, there's all the difference in the world between whether a ball is fair and foul. So the problem of realism arises inside the game, not external to the game. And so that's what I mean by ex external, ex by internal realism. Now an interesting question that this raises is what do you make of when they change the rules of the game through like MLB sort of legislates that we're going to we're going to make some fundamental rule change. Um, are they making it from within or from without? Are they changing the game from within? Or are they, and there's a lot of interesting questions that I don't think there's a clear answer to, which is more example of how much food for thought baseball throws up for us. Um, as I was reading the book, uh, there came a point in which it, it became clear to me that the question of, what, of whether baseball was a metaphor for something uh, or not was deliciously ambiguous. Mm -hmm. um, the, 
baseball becomes as much the object of your focus as a metaphorical way of thinking about many, many, many things in the world. So baseball, at one point in my read through the book, no longer became just the object of your attention. It became a lens or a vehicle by, through which to see many other questions, including these ones of responsibility, including issues about um, uh, realism, including about an interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, do you find other sports to provide the same kind of experience? So in a way, the, the book, I give something and then I take it away. Because what I give is a particular structure that I find in baseball, a structure that makes a domain of life baseball-like. And what it, what it is to be baseball-like, I think, is, as you said earlier on, is precisely for reflection to be built into the activity. So you might think there's this first-order activity, hitting, throwing, running, stealing bases, that, and then we can think about it. And there's, there's the doing and there's the thinking. But what I suggest is, no, baseball is an activity which contains as part of itself its own meta-reflective activity. Um, so the second order is contained within the first order. And that's actually the sense in which I, I came to the title, infinite baseball. That's the sense in which I think you can't draw the limits to the game around the physical stuff going on in the field, because it becomes a whole thought practice and, in some ways, a whole community or world of activity. Um, but of course, once I noticed this interesting fact about baseball, I began to realize it's, it's not in any way unique to baseball. In fact, it might be distinctive of all significant domains of human culture. Language, in my sense, is baseball-like. When you use a language, you don't just use words. You also reflect on your use of words. You, you explain your use of words when somebody doesn't understand you, or you deal with the inevitable misunderstandings that arise between people when they're talking. So language is baseball-like. The law is baseball-like. So it turns out that I think, actually, baseball became, for me, a way of discovering a more general fact about the, what, makes, what makes the phenomenon interestingly cultural. And then it's also true of other sports. However, where I want to say, where I want to make a special plea that baseball offers something unique is in the way it wears these concerns right on its surface. And the way in which it, it, it um, how should I put it, the way it kind of thematizes them within the activity itself. And this is shown nowhere else more clearly than in, in this problem of keeping score. So the fact that to be part of the baseball world is to be a scorekeeper. That is someone who, while you're doing something, is also concerned with writing it down, which requires understanding what it is and taking that seriously, is, is, is really a very explicit engagement with this actually very general fact about culture that there's this kind of looping and bedding up of self-reflection inside of it. So I wanted to ask you a question, <clears throat> a question about wording baseball and wording the world. But I'm not going to do that so that we have time oh, yes, for good. questions <laughs> from, from the audience. I tell you, are no many. Later. 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 Yeah. Tim, do you want to moderate the questions, or shall we do that? From, we can, we can, we can, all right, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the encouragement. But <laughs> can I? Can I get started? We need a microphone. <laughs> we need a microphone for Tim. Just while other people are pondering this. 
So, so I, I was really struck by this idea of the story, uh, the, mm. of baseball as a story. And, and, and I just, I mean, it's just an observation. It's then probably not by accident that we have this tradition of announcers who are great storytellers, the kind of Vin Scully figures who really narrate the unfolding of a baseball game in the kind of way that you don't have in any other sport. I mean, and yeah. I got most of my baseball through the radio and the kind of, the, the kind of different ways in which you can narrate a home run at a key moment in a game versus what you would do in a football game, which is kind of always say the same thing, uh, is <laughs> quite, again, quite unique to baseball. Yeah. That's, that's a lovely observation, and I completely agree with you. Um, just to kind of add a little bit to it, um, a lot of the observations that I make about baseball in this book come from watching children play baseball, and there's some other baseball moms in the room with me here. Um, and we, like I'm re really interested in what they do when they play the game. And it's a lot more than just running, hitting, pitching, catching. There's a lot of talking. There's a lot of commentary to each other. And a lot, some of that commentary is just a kind of jibber-jabber, but some of it is actually not to be too sort of heavy about it, but it's like emotional regulation. Like the work that a young person has to do, a boy or a girl, at the plate or on the mound during a high pressure point in a game, you can see tears rolling down the cheeks of the 12-year-old pitcher. And there's a lot of languaging inside baseball that makes it possible for those players to survive that. Now, is that part of baseball? Yes. That's not sort of this external thing that goes, it's part of the game. Similarly, the parents are not just on the <laughs> sidelines watching. They're not merely witnessing. They're wrapped up in, the, in a very complex emotional give and take through what they shout and what they say, or what they don't shout, or what they don't say, or the eye contact that they make, or the energy bar that they pass through the fence, or whatever it might be. They're involved also. So the circle, the circle widens. And I would actually want to say it widens so far as to include Vin Scully and this kind of larger process of thinking and thinking about the game. Um, in fact, there's a sense in which I want my book to be part of that baseball activity itself. Yeah. Thank you for that great talk. Um, I'm, so you say that like scorekeeping and other sort of like reflective activities that go within baseball, they involve like agency and interpretation. They're not just objective recording sciences. Um, I'm wondering how you think about like the, like maybe possible analogous reflective activities and like empirical sciences, like the hardest sciences we can imagine, like maybe like physics and then on like one hand or, and then like maybe like in visual arts, reflective activities within the visual arts on the other hand, how would you situate like the reflective activities that go on in baseball, like compare those with the, these two seemingly opposite extremes on some like dimension. Yeah, would it be possible to ask a bigger question? <laughs> I mean, could, maybe next semester I'll teach a seminar on that question. <laughs> no, because that's so, that's so profound. And I think you're right to register that there are differences, differences in what reflection means inside an artistic practice and, or philosophical practice and what it means inside a laboratory practice and what it means inside a baseball practice. I just want to say it's, you're right to, to, to ask the question. I, ca I can't really quite answer it. I will say something, that when you talked about how there's going to be a panel or a series you're having, having soon on composition, one of the puns that I like to play with throughout the book is the idea that 
you know, you're composing a score when you compose a baseball score. It's not a score that you will play after or that you will give to. Oh. You don't play baseball after a score. Um, although that would be a fun, a fun game, wouldn't it? You take the game and replay it. <laughs> Reconstruct the game kind of like a Civil War battle, except according to, by the score. Um, and then that raises all these interesting questions about how much is left out of a score that is required in order to play it, just as Beethoven needed to hand write in exactly how loud you needed to bang those keys. Similarly, you know, do you want the runners to slide in head first or leg first, or do you want them to scratch themselves when they're standing there, whatever it is? But and this it, becomes performance art. Now. And it becomes performance art. It becomes performance art. Or, or, or maybe it's interesting to ask why it isn't performance art. So um, I think that there are so many differences in the way in which baseball reflection happens and, and, and what we call critical reflection in science. Um, just maybe to say one thing is that in science, and I'm, I'm obviously we have to speak in big generalizing terms, but science is really results oriented. It's really results oriented. You know, what is the finding and you want, you want to record the methods used and are the findings replicable and um, what's the abstract? What's the bottom line? Baseball has no bottom line. Uh, you're actually, you're, you're just reflecting on the meaning of events as they unfold. And with tremendous freedom. There's no, there's no one right way to do it. That's another really interesting thing. Even in the baseball community, you can keep score for different purposes. If I'm the pitcher's mom, I'll notate things that I wouldn't if I were you know, a scout from a, from a school. So there's, there's a lot of uh, open texture to these processes. Thank you for the yeah, question. I, think about Darcy. Uh, I haven't read your book. I'm an art historian. And one of the most satisfying things about baseball, and I do find it an incredibly satisfying sport, is the beauty of the field mm. and the simplicity of that and what it is to look upon something that seems to order the game in such a profound way. And that makes me think of not just how an architect or someone who theorizes space might want to speak to this issue, but I also think it's also incredibly slow as a sport. Mm. So that slowing down and having the visual of, in such a simplified, orderly way, seems to me that it would be something that might appeal to you. It appeals to me and is quite different than other sports. Mm. And I want to know if you want to speak to that, mm. those two aspects, the visual, spatial, and the temporal. Thank you for those two beautiful points. Um, I, I go to a lot of baseball games, and I never fail to sort of inhale with astonishment at how beautiful the field is. Um, night games, it's one kind of beauty. Day games, it's another kind. When you come out of the stands and boom, there's that expanse. Um, it's just a, it is an astonishing thing to see. Every field is different from every other field in their actual layout and ground rules. And the, you know, the, I was just at a Giants game thinking about that crazy outfield wall that they have. And the football grid. And then there's the, the, the football really grid. Actually, I grew up. I grew up in New York when, the, for there were a few years in the '70s, when the Mets, the Yankees, and the Jets all played in the same the same Shea Stadium. Um, but um, the the uh, other question you ask is something I discuss. I don't discuss this question that you just raised, but the other question you mentioned I do discuss a lot in the book, and it's this issue about how boring it is. 
and uh, how grateful I am for the opportunity for that kind of boredom, and how Major League Baseball is really barking up the wrong tree with their obsession about pace of play and their desire to find ways to speed up the game. Because they're really misunderstanding where the action is. So again, when, like when, we, when, we, when, when our kids are playing in high school ball or little league ball, we have to teach them, after they've swung and missed, to step out of the batter's box and take a few swings to collect themselves. They have to learn to waste time that way, because it's a crucial part of collecting themselves for the challenge of stepping back in and, and controlling the clock, controlling the timing of the whole situation. Um, almost every slow event taking place on the field is in that way a time when tactical decisions are being evaluated and things are happening. The things that are happening are quiet and thoughtful. They're not boring. Um, or they're boring for the spectator, but, but in the way that something complex to follow and think about can be boring, like a crossword puzzle can be boring, or a, or a math problem can be boring. But of course, it can be fascinating if you turn onto it in the right way. Which is another whole theme in the book about the way in which loving baseball, and this is not unique to baseball, and it's also shared with the arts, is an opportunity to hone one's abilities to pay attention to things, to care about things, to, to see a double play, to discern it for it to, for it to be for it to be manifest to you. Yeah, so these are really, really important topics. Oh, so you, please in the front row here. Yes. Microphone. Related to that point you made that I really enjoyed for some reason is you never know how long the game is going mm. to last. Yeah. And that seems of some importance in what you were just talking about. Right. That's right. For some reason, my son and I always like to imagine all the different ways in which a game could go on infinitely long. And, and give you, that's right. There, 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 there is, for, for the, I know there are some, some innocent Europeans in the room who may not even know this, but a baseball game has no natural end. It, it only ends if, at a certain point, there's one team ahead. Otherwise, you don't call it a tie. They just play forever. Um, uh, yeah, I think this gentleman here had a question. There's the uh, there's little league baseball. There's Cal baseball. There's the baseball of those of us that got to listen to it in the radio on the radio a long time ago. Um, today, um, I, I guess I could refer to it as the infinite commercialization of baseball. And I just wondered if you've given that any thought. The difference between seeing kids play, seeing college students play, and then what's happened. Uh, in the last, you know, several decades to the uh, increasing commercialization of the sport. We have so little time left, I want to be brief because there are other voices, but I, I want to say that's a fascinating set of issues. Um, I think baseball's always been very propagandistic about itself in ways that suggest advertising. This idea that baseball is the national pastime, that's got to be the best marketing slogan that anybody ever came up with uh, for an activity. Um, but it's true, the, the, the money and the advertising and the, 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 and now actually through cable television and all of that, the limited access to games on television, the free broadcast TV isn't, doesn't cover most games anymore. Um, it's quite nauseating what's happened to the game. I don't really try to register that or, or track that or tell that story in the, in the book, but a story I am interested in the book is how it's possible still to love the game despite that. And, um, I tell a story which I was with my, my I'm a New York, New York and I'm a Mets fan, and we were in Oakland when there was interleague play, the New York Mets were in town playing the A's, 
and at the end of the game, David Wright, who's a, a great Met superstar until very recently, um, as he was running off the field, might, we'd run down to the front, and we're, we're standing near the dugout. When running off the field, he took off his batting gloves and his, his um, sweatbands and tossed them to us. Um, and I, you know, however 40-something-year-old I was at the time, I nearly fell down on my knees <laughs> in, in a sense of gratitude. And you know, but gratitude isn't strong enough a word. Love for, for, for what he had done. Now, of course, for all I know, you know, they, they're all branded with Nike. And for all I know, his part of his branding, marketing, self-marketing scheme is he has to share out this, these advertising things. But it didn't, mind you, I gave it all to my kids. <laughs> after I snatched it. So anyway, this is, a big, this is a big and complicated question. I'm glad you named it. Yeah. Probably time for maybe one or two more. Yes, yeah, so way in the back and then... And uh, go ways tonight. Yeah, go ways tonight, absolutely. <laughs> one of the things you uh, brought up was the, the idea of how we talk about the sport and what kind of language. And one of the things that occurred to me was this great George Carlin bit where he compares baseball to football. Yeah. I'm wondering if you address that in the book or have any further description or discussion about that. For example, football comes across as very militaristic. You know, we're going to throw the bomb and right. go deep <laughs> into enemy ter territory, while in baseball we all want to go home. <laughs> so, very different. We want to be safe. <laughs> safe at home, yeah. So, uh, do you have any thoughts on how we describe, I mean, how that affects cultures? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't really discuss that exact point, but let me just say very briefly something which I do discuss, which is, I think, in the vicinity. You know, baseball is a product of the late 19th century or the mid 19th century which is also the time when science, as we know it today, really took form. Um, and science, you know, we, we, you know, we used to have, have the possibility of, of, of a one very clever person, at least aspirationally, understanding everything. But one of the things that happened in the late 19th century is knowledge really became purchased through specialization. You have all these new sciences, and every science is sort of deep in the tunnels of its own expert mastery with no ability for, for crosstalk. And you have the emergence of a certain kind of certain kind of notion of, of expertise and specialization. Um, and then how do you fit human values into that story? And I think one thing you can say about American society is that it's, it's a place where there's this battle going on between how to, how to think of the relationship between science and value. And one of the forms it takes is positivism, namely the idea that actually, if you just have the right theory, you can crunch the numbers and get the answers you need. Should you take that picture out now? Crunch the numbers, get the answers you need. Should you stop breastfeeding now? Crunch the numbers, get the answers you need. Um, and then on the other view, you, you realize that there are limits to what science can tell us and that there are challenges, hard choices everybody needs to make. That manager finally needs to follow his gut about whether to leave that picture in or not. The mother needs to decide whether she can really tolerate breastfeeding anymore, whatever, whatever the considerations might be. And I mention that because uh, it's a very interesting way, I think, in which it's not Carlin's point about safety versus militarism, but it's a very interesting way in which there really is a sense in which some, some or at least Americans are working out a certain way of reflecting on certain problems is, is worked out in the setting of baseball. I think we have time for a last question. Wait for the microphone. Was it me? Yes. Oh, actually, I, I, I 
my mouth because what I know is, is cricket, the ancestor <laughs> of baseball, of course. And, uh, and a lot of what you said pertains to critic, so cricket almost all the more. I mean, if baseball is slow, cricket is slower. Um, but the, uh, but I, the general point I wanted to make, building up a bit on what has been said about the aesthetics of, of, this, of the game, uh, and I don't know if it comes into the book, is the idea of style and ritual. Mm. And it seems to me there's a sense in which perhaps all, all sports, but particularly cricket and, uh, and baseball, they're like, like kind of, a kind of ideal space. There's a game, but it's not a creative game in one sense. It's, a, it's an expected game, and it's the kind of comfort of the players. They're wearing the right uniform. They're, they're, they're placed in the right areas of the game. The spaces in which nothing is happening, but, you know, people can talk. It's, it's, a very, it's an image of life in a very special way. Mm. It's sort of controlled and at the same time predictable, and yet there's always something new happening. I wonder about this kind of aspect of ritual. It's sort of people can, it's a comfort to, to, the, to being there if you know the game. What, what about that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, all, I, all I can simply say is I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, that expressed itself in so many ways. You know, people eat their comfort foods when they watch, or they drink their comfort drinks, and they, they, um, they. There's no, there is this. It's also connected to the something I am a bit critical of in the book, but which is a really important strand in baseball writing, at least. And I wouldn't be surprised if it were also true of cricket. Is nostalgia about the golden age, and and also the special experiences one had as a as a young person with dad. You know, having these experiences. Um, I, I grew up in Greenwich Village to kind of hippie, radical outsiders who hated baseball and everything conventional. <laughs> so for me, baseball was like one brief opportunity to leave that madness and know something safe and, and <laughs> ritualized. Yeah. We didn't go to church, but we, I, I had baseball. Well, I think that's a great note on which to conclude. Thank you, Alpha. Thank you. enjoyed this Berkeley book chat and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs and